Cold Soup, $4. Cold Medicine, $11. Blanket, $24. Making it all better. Priceless. With PayPass on your MasterCard, just tap and go. Some of us have got that cold, right? We're, we're looking for some of that TLC. Well, good morning, everyone. We are continuing our series, Priceless, the Enduring Commitments of a Follower of Christ. These are the seven core values of our church, the things that we're committed to. We've talked about a life of worship, worshiping God in all of life. We've talked about the Bible's authority, centering our lives on God's truth. We've talked about the richness of community, growing together in Christ. We've talked about intentional training. We've talked about compassionate service, humbly extending his compassion to those in need. Last week, intentional training, equipping and preparing and releasing God's people for ministry. And this week, we're looking at persistent prayer, devoting ourselves to pray continually. So we've been singing and talking a lot about prayer already. So how's it going with that thing we call our prayer life? I mean, if you had to rate it right now, 1 to 10, 1 low, 10 high, how are you doing? How, how would you give yourself? And let me ask you a few questions. The first one is the only one I'd say, it might be helpful to answer this with your eyes closed because I, I want you to picture something. When you go to God in prayer, how do you picture him? Is he generous? Or is he stingy? Is he distracted or... Does he have your full attention? Is he mad at you? Or is he glad to talk to you? Can you even see him? And when you pray, what do you usually find yourself praying about? And what would you say is the dominant emotion that's most frequently there when you think about prayer? Is it joy? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it discouragement? And when you pray, what do you expect to happen? Anything? Nothing? For that request to get answered right away? Aren't you sure? And when you think about prayer, do you feel like it's something you have to do, you're supposed to do, kind of duty? Or is it more, I get to do this. It's more a thing of pleasure and delight. When we think about this value, persistent prayer. What we're saying here is it's the delightful duty. So it is a duty. It's what we're called to, but it's our delight. It's a delightful duty of devoting ourselves to pray continually as an expression of our love to God and our complete dependence upon him. For as John fifteen five says, apart from him, can't do anything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So as we dig into this subject here of prayer, we're going to go to Matthew 6. So take your Bibles, open up to Matthew's Gospel, the 6th chapter, page 684. If you forgot a Bible or don't have one, grab one from the rack in front of you. And as always, those of you who are visiting and you don't have a Bible and would like one, please feel free to take that as our gift to you as you seek to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. So Matthew 6, we'll read together verses 5 through 8. And as I read these four verses, I want you to list in your mind, look for two things of why we shouldn't pray, okay? Verse 5. 
And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Did you see the two reasons why we shouldn't pray? The first is we don't pray to be seen by others. We're not to be like the hypocrites who made their prayers a bit of a show. They were out on the street corners. They were going on and on in the synagogue, hoping that everybody would say, my, that is a religious person. Would you just listen to him pray? God says, you got, you got your reward in, in the praise of men. Don't pray to be seen by others as an expression of your spiritual greatness. Pray because he's great. And you want to make him great. We don't pray also to be heard. So he talks about don't, don't babble on like the pagans where they we just keep repeating it over time and time again. And maybe as we think about it, hey, that kind of sounds like my prayer life, saying the same thing over and over again. For he goes on to say in verse 8, did you see it? Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Reminds us of the psalmist in 139, verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Completely, O oh Lord. So it's not to be seen by others. It's not fundamentally to be heard by God. In other words, God already knows what's going on in our life. So our prayer is not to tune him in to what's been happening. Hey, God, you know, you've been busy, I'm sure. Let me tell you about my week. And he already knows. He knows it all. So what are the right reasons? Well, the first thing is we realize that Jesus assumes we pray. And the reason we can do that is three times in verses 5, 6, and 7, he used that little word when. When you pray, when you pray, when you pray. What's he doing? He's assuming that we are people of prayer. Why? Because we have a relationship. We pray because we have a loving relationship with God who's described here in Matthew 6 as our Father. And that's what we come to expect. When people have a loving relationship, they talk to each other. That's what's so weird to see the couple at the restaurant. We know they're married. I mean, they look alike by this point in their marriage. They've got bands, and they don't say anything, like the whole dinner. You're going, wow, that's kind of weird. Well, that may be kind of sad weird, but it's a different kind of sad when all of a sudden we think about, yeah, there's someone in my life right now. It's hard. We, we don't talk. So you see that? That's not, that's not right in relationships where there's love. We, we talk. You think about those of us who are married when we first fell in love. Oh my word, were we talking? Way past where we should have been talking. Late, late at night. And Lori and I, we got so carried away that one night at Bethel College, we decided, it was my idea. I know, it's really corny. I, I shouldn't say this, but since Lori's in Minnesota, I can say it. So, they had these little intercampus telephones, and you could call, you know, each other for free. It wouldn't cost you a dime. And so I said, hey, here's an idea. Let, let's keep the phone by our heads as we go to bed tonight. And if anybody wakes up, we can just kind of talk to each other all through the night. I don't think we ever did, but, you know, that was my corny idea. I wanted to talk to her all the time. That's what we do in a loving relationship. 
Jesus says, when you pray, because he assumes that's what you do. You talk to your father, the one who loves you, the one who sent his son to die for you. That's why we pray. Let me give you some other reasons that come from the scriptures. These aren't all of them, but a few more to add to it. Matthew 26. We pray because prayer keeps us from falling, from falling into temptation. So Jesus said to his disciples, the night in which he was betrayed and arrested, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And so some of us fell into temptation this last week because we weren't watchful and we weren't vigilant. We weren't praying. That's why we wiped out. Goes on to say, it's God's will. Colossians 4.2 is an example of this, a clear command in scriptures. Devote yourselves to prayer. It's a command. It's an imperative. Be watchful and thankful. Or Romans 12, verse 12. Be faithful in prayer. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray continually, for this is God's will. Not only that, we can add to that, we pray because prayer is powerful. It's effective. So James 5 says this, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. I don't know if you know this about prayer. Prayer is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man or woman, the prayer of a righteous student in high school or middle school or of a child who loves God. You go, well, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not that righteous. Elijah was a man just like us. He was a man just like us. Powerful. I read the story this week of David Howard. I knew David back at our church in Wheaton. He was a great missionary leader. He's the brother of Elizabeth Elliot. And he tells the story of being a junior at Wheaton College. Went to campus that fall. There's a new guy working the buildings. He was a custodian. Peter Schneider was his name. He was from Germany. They heard he was a prisoner of war. They wondered what the story was. Was he in Hitler's army? What's the deal? They didn't know. They wondered about his faith. Is this guy a follower of Christ? They didn't know. But David's good friend, Jim Elliott, kind of was moved by God, his spirit nudging him to say, you need to pray for that man and get some friends to pray for that man. So David says, that's what Jim did. He got me and a few other buddies and we got together and we prayed for this guy. And we'd see him in the halls and we'd smile and we'd do everything we could, not having a a common language to just make him feel accepted and loved. And we just were hoping that God would hear our prayers and do something great. He said, well, Peter left campus not that far after and we never heard from him again. He said, 30 years went by. I was at a conference in Bermuda, of all places. I'm meeting with some other leaders in the church talking about evangelism. Billy Graham was there. And we had a break and I'm on the beach in Bermuda and I'm looking over the harbor and one of the guys who's out with me on the break uh, notices a British sub and he says, you know, I was on a sub. I was on one of Hitler's subs. I was in his Navy. David looks at him, he says, well, that's the story I'd like to hear. So he goes and tells him a story. He said, at the end of the war, Hitler pulled all his sailors out of the boats, the U-boats, and he put us on the front line. I went to the front line in Holland. I was shot. I was wounded. My uh, platoon deserted me. They got captured by the Russians, and I don't think any of them made it. I got captured by the Brits. I got patched up. And after the war, I went to America for, for a short time. And then on my way back, 
to Germany, I, I've become the leader, the director of Billy Graham Association in Germany. And David says, what's your name? He says, my name's Peter Schneider. I said, Peter Schneider. I know that name. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, Peter Schneider, the janitor, the German janitor that we prayed for. And so his heart's pounding. He's excited. He says, Peter, let me ask you a question. Did you go to Wheaton? Wheaton College? He says, well, I didn't go to the school, but I worked there. He says, you're kidding. Let me ask you another question. Were you a follower of Christ when you were a janitor at Wheaton College back in 1947? He said, I didn't know anything about what it means to be a follower of Christ. In fact, it wasn't until I left Wheaton and went to a YMCA camp in none other than the state of Wisconsin and I found Christ. Then David said, well, then I got to tell you the rest of the story. A story that you don't know. There's a group of us that were praying for you. And he goes on to say, just what a wild thing that this guy who was in Hitler's Navy, this guy who was a custodian that didn't speak any English that the prayers that these guys were praying for this man were heard by God in a powerful way. And this guy's a major leader in the church in Germany. Prayer of a righteous woman, prayer of a righteous man, of a righteous student is powerful and effective. Some of us, could say that's exactly right and I could tell you story after story some of us are here because someone else's prayer was powerful and effective in your own life well Jesus then gives us really the last reason why we should pray because he teaches us to pray in fact the interesting thing to think about is in the Luke account of the Lord's prayer the disciples say to Jesus Jesus teach us to pray and what he doesn't do is say, okay, get your paper and pen out. I'm going to give you a great outline. Or, hey, I got a great book. Hey, listen to this DVD. This is a good one on prayer. You ought to plug it in. What he does is he prays. That's probably a good thing for us that are saying, that, you, know, my, you know, I was kind of down below the five mark on the one to ten scale, and I know I need to work on this thing. Is don't run out to get a book. Best thing to do is follow Jesus' example. When his disciples asked him, teach us to pray, what he did is he prayed. The best way to grow in prayer is to pray. So let's look at the Lord's Prayer. And let's pray this together, even as Christ taught us, as we read together verses 9 through 13 of Matthew 6. Okay, here we go. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And for a lot of us, we're right ready to say, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And if you look at the footnote in a lot of your Bibles, you'll notice that that's added in later manuscripts. In the earliest manuscripts we have, that's not included. It was probably added later because some scribe along the way said, that's kind of a funny ending. I'll give it a little nicer ending. So it fits. It's something we repeat, and it's proper to say that to God in prayer, but probably not what his disciples first heard when Jesus was teaching here. What I want you to notice in this prayer is after the opening introductory line of our Father in heaven, there's six petitions. There's six requests. The first three focus in on God. His name, his kingdom, his will. 
The next three focus in on ourselves for daily sustenance, for bread, for our sins to be forgiven, and for us to be rescued out of temptation. So notice then that first phrase, our Father in heaven. This reminds us, who are we praying to? We're praying to our Father. And that word Father is the word for Daddy in the Aramaic language. Most of the New Testament's written in Greek. This is the Aramaic word. This is the language that Jesus would have been speaking day to day. That's like his mother tongue, all right? He, he calls him Daddy. It's an intimate term. It's a term of a relationship. And the only reason we can call him Father is because out of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness through Christ, we've been adopted into his family. That's what we studied a few months ago when we were looking at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Or we look at John chapter 1, verse 12. John writes, Yet to all who received him, who received Christ, those who believed in his name, who put their faith in Christ, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. The reason we can call him Father is because we have a relationship through Christ. We're his children. He's our Father. And we have Christ's Spirit in us. And that Spirit convinces us, testifies, Hey, you do belong. You know God. He is your Father. And you're his son. You're his daughter. So Galatians 4, 6 says this, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we say, our Father, our Father in heaven. Not my Father, not give me my bread, give us. If there's a corporate sense of this prayer, it's beautiful. Our prayers must extend beyond ourselves. It's not wrong to pray for ourselves, but it's more than that. Our Father, our Father who's in heaven. And here's the symmetry that we need to hold to as we come into his presence. Because in heaven, he's not talking about, whoa, God, is, he's, he's here and then he's far away and he's way far away. He's in heaven. He's in a different place. It's more like he's on a whole different plane. He's at a whole different level. Because our God who is near to us, this one who we can jump into his lap like a kid into his dad's lap, is also, he's in heaven. He, he is the creator of all things. Heaven can't even contain him. This earth can't contain him. There isn't anywhere, Psalm 139 says, that we can go here where he is not. He is far greater than us. He's almighty God. He transcends creation. He is so much bigger than us. And so we carry that balance as we go to prayer. He's our loving father. And yet there's awe and reverence that we're going into the presence of almighty, all holy God. So it's with that kind of prelude into the the prayer that we now look at the petitions. The first one, hallowed be your name. That just means holy is your name. What we're praying here is, Lord, I want to live my life in such a way that I'm making, I'm giving acknowledgement that you are holy and I'm helping other people see that you're holy, that you're completely different, that you're distinct. I'm praying that your name, your character, your person would be hallowed, would be made holy by others recognizing who you are. Hallowed be your name. And we're praying for this 
to happen in our lives and in other people's lives. And so right away we see there's a focus that's Godward. We're beginning to worship him. We're making his name holy. We're praising him for his holy name, his holy character, his goodness and his mercy and his love and his justice that's all perfect. And that perspective that we have as we see him for who he is carries us through our life of prayer. Ah, we're seeing things from his vantage point, not from ours. Gives us great confidence as we bring the cares of our life to him. And he goes on, he says, your kingdom come. When we're praying for God's kingdom to come, what we're praying is, Lord, God, we know and recognize your son as king, ruler over all things. We want him to have free reign in our lives. Lord, I want the reign of Christ to extend to every nook and cranny of my life. I don't want there to be any pocket of resistance. And so, Lord, may your kingdom come. May it extend and expand in my heart, in my life, in my family in my church family, in this city, praying for his rule to be established and to spread in the hearts and lives of people. His kingdom is not fundamentally about a place. It's about a relationship. And when we pray for his kingdom to come, we're praying for the ultimate. And that is when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom. And heaven, again, is not so much about a place as it is about a person. It's not that it's not about a place, but fundamentally what it is, it's life with Christ, with God himself forever. And so when we're praying, my kingdom come, your rule to extend in my life, and for Christ, for you to come up and come back and establish your perfect kingdom. Your kingdom come. Then he goes and he says, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying at that point is, God, I want to do your will. When we say on earth, we're saying in my life, because I live down here on earth, and I want my obedience to you and following your will here on earth to be just like it's being done in heaven. How is it being done in heaven? Joyful obedience. Perfect, joyful obedience. Lord, that's how I want it to be for me. I want to be someone who's doing your will with joy. I want to do your will. And when we pray that, we're praying just what Jesus prayed. Not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done in my life, in our lives, as it is in heaven. And so what we see here as we pray for his will to be done in our lives is what we're saying in prayer is, God, I want my will to be bent to yours. I want it to be shaped by yours. I'm not here trying to cajole you. I'm not here trying to convince you that you ought to do what I think should be done here. I am submitting to you, your God. Your ways are higher than mine. You're good. You're sovereign. You're perfect. And I want to bend my will to yours as I pray to you. Now, there's this hinge, and we go to the fourth, fifth, and sixth request. First, for daily bread. And he notice, he says here, give us today our daily bread. The emphasis is, it's today's bread. It's daily bread. It's not tomorrow's bread. It's not bread next month. We're praying for the necessities of life that we need today. Food and shelter and clothing and work. And we're focused in on that. And here's what we know about how our Heavenly Father responds to, Lord, I need, I need bread. I need the stuff of today. Can you give it to me? Here's what we know from Scripture, Matthew 7. Just a page over in your Bible, verse 9 through 11. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Give us today our daily bread. Lord, give me what I need today. Give me what I need. Then we go to this whole matter of our sins. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here we're confessing our debts. What is our debt? Our debt to God. What we owe God is how we started the service. What is the great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when we, when we confess our debts, when we ask him to forgive our debts, we're saying, Lord, I owed you love today. And I didn't love you in these ways. Lord, part of loving you is loving my neighbor as myself. And I didn't love my neighbor as myself. And so forgive me for my debts, for the things that I did that wasn't loving to you, wasn't loving to my neighbor. And as I pray that, I'm, I'm saying, Lord, there's things I know about. And then there's things I don't know about. Show me those. There's the things I should have done that I didn't do. And there's the things that I did do. I'm really aware of it. Forgive me. Forgive me. And even as we're asking God for forgiveness, we're reminding ourselves of the truth of this petition here. And that is that if I've been forgiven, I am to be forgiving. It reminds us to be a forgiving person. So we pray here, forgive us our debts. And the assumption in this prayer is, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And here's the deal, verse 14, if we don't, we're in a heap of trouble. Look at verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay, that's good. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The mark of a Christ follower is we're forgiven and we forgive. That's hard though, isn't it? It's really hard. The last thing. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, there's some questions here. And the question is, is it possible that God could lead us into temptation? I mean, why is Jesus teaching us to pray this way? The answer is no, it's not possible. Here's why. James 1.13 makes it clear. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we know from Scripture, God doesn't do that. So when it says, lead us not in temptation, even though it looks like he might be able to do that, we know from James 1.13, that's not possible. Scripture interprets Scripture here. They can't both be true. James can't be true, and Jesus can't mean here. God actually does tempt us. And so now we're praying, God, don't do that. Now what's going on here is Jesus is using a figure of speech. The technical term is litosis. The way this figure of speech works is it makes its point and expresses something by negation. So when he says, lead us not into temptation, he's saying, lead us away from it. Lead us away from it. And that makes sense with the context. Deliver me from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. That phrase, lead, literally means bring into the ear. And so we could paraphrase it in this way. God, don't let me get even into an earshot of temptation. I don't even want to get that close where I hear it. Deliver me from evil. And here's the cool thing we know from Scripture regarding God's rescuing us from evil and from temptation. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a really important verse to have 
you get in your frontal lobe as you walk with Christ. No temptation has seized you and me except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Anything we go through, we can always say nothing new. Someone's gone through it before. Someone in this room's gone through it this week too, probably. And when we go through, he's faithful. He won't let us get to anything where we go, it's too much for me, God. You gave me something that I can't bear. Shouldn't have done that, God. So you know why I'm sinning here, because I just can't do it. Not my fault, it's your fault. And I can't do that. He'll never give us something that's bigger than us. And with everything he gives us, he always gives us an exit sign. Anything he allows to come into your life, there's always a way out of the temptation. He's faithful in these things. And so we pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, what are we committing to? How are we to pray? We're to pray continually following the pattern that Jesus gave his disciples. It doesn't mean that the only thing we pray is this prayer, but it means the template of this prayer ought to be in our minds and be a framework in our prayer life as we begin focusing on him, our Father in heaven, as we pray for his name to be made holy in my life and in others, as we pray for his kingdom, his rule to extend in my heart and others' lives, for his will to be done. And then we move to today for our daily bread. Then we go to confession, confessing our sins. And then we go to this whole matter that we have at the end of leading us not into temptation. So then what does it mean to pray continually? Because if I think what it means is what it means, I think I probably get fired this week. Because if I just pray throughout this day tomorrow, I think my boss is going to be probably ticked off. I think my teacher may kick me out of class. I think my coach may kick me off the team. What does it mean? It means that the practice of prayer becomes a habit of prayer so that like Christ, we get away to that quiet place and pray. And then that sets this attitude of prayer where we're talking with God throughout the day. It's what 1 Thessalonians 5 is talking about when it says, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will. That we have the practice of prayer that we have the attitude of prayer throughout the day. As Brother Lawrence put it in his little book, the practice of the presence of God. It's what I learned as I listened to my mom doing the dishes, talking out loud to God, just praying through the day. So what's going to keep us from that? Let me give you some barriers. The first is where God starts out, where Jesus started out, and that is our view of God. Anything less than a loving father who's in complete control, sovereign over all things, all-powerful, who cares? Anything less than that is going to be a deficient view of God that gives us a deficient view of of prayer that'll have us not praying. Prayerlessness, obviously, is a huge barrier. We're just out of practice or we've never begun the practice. For some of us, it's wrong motives. We're praying, but we're asking for the wrong things. James 4 puts those two together, prayerlessness and wrong motives in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. You do not have because you do not ask God. Whoa. 
There's stuff in your life that you could have. There's stuff in your life that you really want, but you've never asked God for it. That's what he says. You do not have because you do not ask God. But then someone's going to say, well, James, I've been asking God. So then he goes on. When you ask, you do not receive. And here's why. Because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. All of a sudden, your prayers are about you and your happiness instead of God and his glory. And you've not figured it out. That your happiness and joy is intimately related to his glory. And when you live for his glory, you will find great satisfaction and joy. You're living for your glory, for your joy, and you ain't going to get it. There's pride, selfishness. Job 35.10 says, He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. We're proud and arrogant. God's not going to hear us. Here's a scary one, men, those of us who are married. The way we treat our wives affects our prayer life. 1 Peter 3.7 says if we're not sensitive, if we're not living with our wives in an understanding way, treating them as joint heir in Christ, our failure to treat them as we ought hinders our prayers. God will not hear us. There's a lack of faith in James chapter 1 when the man's praying for wisdom but not really believing that God could do that. There's the unforgiving spirit that we looked at here in Matthew 6. There's unconfessed sin that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 66, 18. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. And then there's busyness. So what do we do? Well, let me just say this. We ought to do what Jesus did with his disciples. When they said, teach me how to pray, Lord, he prayed. And when we think about, I, I want to grow in this whole matter of persistent prayer. I want to be someone who's devoted to continually praying all the time, this attitude and, and having a solid life of prayer. You start with prayer. And the, most, the reason most of us fail in our prayer life is not because we don't want to be men and women of prayer. It's because we don't plan to be people of prayer. So make a plan. Keep it simple. So you say, well, this last week, how many times did you pray? I mean, how many times did you just slow down, stop, get in the closet, close the door like Jesus said, and pray? How many times did you do that? If you say, um, I didn't. Okay, then don't start your plan being, I'm going for an hour a day, seven days this week. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome until Tuesday. And then you're going to be depressed and discouraged and full of guilt. Just start, make it simple, make it practical. Say this week, okay, if I haven't prayed and it's not a practice in my life, let's go for three times. Can you do three times? Can you go 15 minutes? Say, I'm going to set aside 15 minutes. The first five, I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to read, I'm going to fill my mind with God's word. He's talking to me through his word. Now I'm going to think about it. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit just noodle this truth in my mind. And through that meditation on God's word, it's going to just catapult me to prayer. So my prayers are aligned to the word. Five minutes for the word, five minutes to think about it, five minutes to pray. For some of us, it means we need to slow down because our mind's racing. And the best thing we can do at that prayer time is write out our prayer because it just slows us down. I've been doing it this week. It's amazing. That's not how I'm wired. I don't like to write it out. But the truth is, it's hard for me to sit down and pray. It's easy to have that attitude through the day. A lot harder to get quiet and to be still and know that he's God. For some of us, it'd be best for us to find someone to pray with, a friend, 
For others, we just say, as we, as we make this list, this prayer list, to have some kind of a guide here, like the acrostic acts. A stands for adoration. This is my praise of who God is. C is for confession, for my debts, where I didn't love him and others. T is for thanksgiving, for all the things in my life that I can be thankful for. S is for supplication. Old word, new word is my request, the things that are on my heart. I give them to God. So pray. Pray. Put it in your calendar. Put it in your outlook. Put it somewhere where you've planned it out. Find that place. You know where you're going. That's a quiet place, a private place. And then the second thing I'd say is, well, don't hang up then. You got the conversation going, hopefully early in the morning. Maybe it's late at night before you go to bed. Well, then you get up or you continue the day where you know, hey, he's right there with me. God's right there with me. Pray throughout the day. Cultivate this attitude of prayer. Here's what I'm convinced of, that this value will be probably the easiest one to neglect. I think it's been the hardest discipline in my own life to be a man who's growing in prayer. And I really believe what the word says. There's power in prayer. And as we think about our mission of changing lives to change the world, changing people into devoted followers of Christ who change the world with his love, my lands, that'll never happen. That'll never happen if we're not about the greater work in that quote that we saw of prayer. And so this is really important. This is really important. And we already have a base of prayer ministry going on through our prayer chain. If you're not aware of that, you can sign up through our website. You can be part of that. And Barb's emails throughout the week will just remind you, yeah, I got, a, I got an opportunity to pray today. But there's some other things we want to do. Starting in the new year, we'd like to have a group of people praying during each one of our services for the ministries that are going on in the church and for our church. We'd love to get a room here that's open a lot during the week whenever the the church is open so you could come here and have a quiet place to pray. We'd like there to be a team of people at the end of every service so that today if there's something on your heart you go, man, I I need wisdom for this decision. Or man, you were talking about a broken relationship. That's me right now. You're talking about forgiveness. I'm having a hard time forgiving someone. I need prayer. That just on the other side of that welcome banner over here will be a prayer banner. And you can go. And you can pray and be prayed for. And so if, you, if you're interested in being part of this prayer ministry, as you leave this morning to the table on your right, you can sign up and get more information. We want to be involved as a people individually and collectively in this whole matter of persistent prayer. So let me end with a Puritan prayer. The Puritan prayers are beautiful. And I love this little book, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of them. Let me read a few lines from this one prayer called Living by Prayer. O God of the open ear. Ah, I like that first phrase. O God of the open ear. Teach me to live by prayer. I can only succeed when I pray. Help me not only to desire small things, but with holy boldness to desire great things for your people and for myself, that they and I might live to show thy glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your ears are open. And we say, even as your followers did way back when you were walking this earth, Lord Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray and remind us again that apart from you, we can do nothing. 
And Lord, we pray that we'd be growing in boldness through prayer as we keep focused on you. And as you grow bigger in our hearts and our minds, may our prayers grow bigger and more bold for you, for your glory, for the work of your kingdom to extend to our hearts and through us to others until you come. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.